description, a more in-depth description of godly sorrow. He kind of summed it up in verse 7, but here he starts delving deeper into the details, and then he's going to tell us about his delight for unity at the very end there. So the very first thing then is his description of what godly sorrow is, and I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful that we can have a description of what true repentance is all about, what true repentance looks like, what it should look like, what are the characteristics of real repentance so that when someone tells us that they have repented, we should ask, are these characteristics in your life? Is there a semblance of these marks, of these characteristics in your life as a result of your repentance, okay? And now, notice how he begins. He calls their attention. He says, behold, what earnestness this very thing. And so before he gets into the very, the, the individual marks, the, before he begins to sort of, uh, sort of bullet point all of these and enumerate each one of these characteristics, first he begins by just pointing out the overarching earnestness that they have that they have exemplified. They have exemplified a zeal, an earnestness, a passion. And the word that's used here and in this context means that they are stepping out and they are fulfilling some sort of obligation that they hold. Uh, I say that because one grammar in particularly defined this word here, earnestness, in this particular context this way. This is uh, the BDAG lexicon. It says, earnestness is the commitment in, of a discharge of an obligation to, of some experience or relationship. And so they had some kind of obligation that they were discharging. They were fulfilling. They knew the right thing to do. And now Paul is commending them that they took initiative and they did it. They did it. It was godly sorrow. He says it's sort of the same exact thing, this earnest thing, this very thing, and he, he defines it as godly sorrow. We've already looked back in the context of verse 10 that there is godly sorrow, and then there is the sorrow of the world. And the sorrow of the world produces the opposite of these things. The sorrow of the world may get frustrated at sin. The sorrow of the world may get angry that it was caught in sin. The sorrow of the world may be uh, upset that the sin has been taken away or that the sin is led them to some tragic situation, but they are not sorrowful in a godly way. It is not because of God. Godly sorrow, as Paul says in verse 10, is in keeping with the will of God which means it is in keeping with God's own purpose, God's own design, what God's own aim is and what God's own goal is for an individual. Godly sorrow comes into conformity with that. And that's what godly sorrow is all about. It's all about. And, you know, we should also realize this, that this godly sorrow had ramifications for the whole church, no doubt. I'm sure just like that, any church, there were those who were closer to the immediate situation, and there were those who were kind of outside of the situation. But, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why this is so important for every one of us. That's why it's important for us to understand what is biblical repentance. What is godly sorrow versus false repentance or worldly sorrow? It's so important because it has ramifications on the whole body. The whole body will be affected by one person's sin, and it certainly can have 
those ramifications. He says, what earnestness this very thing, what sorrow it has produced in you. So there was a zeal here to do what is right. And that's really all that Paul is going to elaborate on. There was a zeal, there was a determination, there was a devotion to do what is right. And it's interesting because this whole passage sort of begins and it ends with this idea of devotion. They were devoted to godly repentance and then they will, be, they will show themselves devoted to Paul himself. So that kind of forms what's known as an inclusio, beginning and ending with the same thing. And that's how Paul is arguing. But uh, let's look at this, uh, this whole list that he gives us here. He says, what this, he says, behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. So he begins with the subject of vindication. What vindication? The word vindication here is the word apologia which most of you know because many of you know about the study of apologetics. The word just simply means to make an argument, to make an argument. But in this context, it means something like that you are proving something. You are, you are exempting yourself from something. You are, if you have an ESV, I think it draws it out a little bit clearer. It says, what earnestness to clear yourself. It's vindication of their reputation. That's what they were interested in. And that's where true repentance begins. It is the desire to vindicate one's reputation, knowing that your reputation will precede you. The second thing is indignation. Isn't this amazing? Paul praises them for their anger, for their wrath. The word indignation just means that. It means anger. It means hatred. And uh, that's another true characteristic of godly sorrow and godly repentance. In order to have genuine love for holiness, there has to be genuine hatred for certain other things, namely sin. We know this from the world, from the Word, not from the world. The world can't teach us anything about godly repentance. I just said that. But the Word teaches this very thing. If you look at, for example, Psalm 97 there in Psalm 97, verse 10, for example, there are so many scriptures on this, and it's amazing how probably a lot of Christians aren't aware of this, but that the, the Word of God commands you to hate certain things. It says, hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of His godly ones. He delivers them from the, the hand of the wicked. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way. The proverb says, The, perver the perverted mouth I hate. Amos chapter 5, verse 15, God exhorted the whole nation to hate evil. Hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gates. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You want the blessing of God? You have to hate evil. 
Romans chapter 12, it's not just an Old Testament concept, but the New Testament teaches the same thing. If you look, for example, at Romans chapter 12, verse 9, and I love the fact of this passage here, that this passage is right in the context of Christian fellowship, of getting together with one another and hanging out and fellowshipping and being the body of Christ and using our gifts with one another and stirring each other up for love and for good works. And right in the middle of that, there is a call to hate. I love it. Because it's authentic, it's pure fellowship, and it must have this ingredient. He says in verse 9, love without hypocrisy, and then he says, abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. That word there, apostugeo, is a really strong word. It means literally that you are repulsed, that that there should be a repulsion. You should repel, violently reject evil. Amazing language for Paul. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. It implies, therefore, that the the Romans, for example, ought to be growing in this. They ought to be growing in their hatred for evil. It's amazing. Now look at the next term. Not only were they called to vindication and indignation, but um, the the next word is fear. Fear. He says, what fear this produced in you. Now, in grammar, there's a word. The word is ascensive. If you look up a, a good commentary, maybe, or, a, or like a good lexicon, it might use the word ascensively, or the ascensive use of a word. And many point out that that's what Paul is doing here. The word ascensively means that it is intensifying. It is ascending upward. It is climbing. It is getting more and more intense as the language goes on. He goes from vindication to indignation and from indignation to a sense of fear. But the question is, fear of what? What is the fear about? Fear of the repercussions of their sin? Maybe. Fear of the fact that um, you know, the, of the unknown, of what will happen because of their division. I think uh, it is fear, to be honest with you, I think it is fear of the, of the repercussions of being rebuked by the Apostle Paul himself. Fear of discipline, fear of rebuke, fear that when Paul, co- that when Paul comes to them, he might come to them with a rod. He might come to them in a disciplinary tone. He says that in the first letter of of the Corinthians, he says that. He says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, am I going to come to you in a disciplinary tone or in a loving tone? It's almost like Paul saying, you choose. It's up to you. It's up to you. And so they were afraid of the repercussions. Later, if you look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, again, uh, remarkably, you know, Paul is a very bold new covenant minister. That's what he says in chapter 3. He says, look, we have this ministry. We speak with great boldness. He's not afraid to be absolutely upfront with the church, to speak boldly, clearly, to speak the truth in love, and not to shrink back, not to shy away from his people. And as I pointed out, so many pastors are afraid of their people, afraid of what they would think, afraid of losing numbers, afraid of losing members, afraid of losing tithes, and so they won't speak the truth. Paul was not like that. Paul spoke the truth no matter what it cost him. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Paul is threatening that if he comes and if, if they don't put things in order, he's going to come to clean spiritual house. He says in verse 20, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I might find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps, he says, there will be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And then if you jump down to chapter 13, verse 2, he says, I have previously said when present the second time, and though now that I'm absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest, if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Paul is no respecter of persons. He is willing to admonish, correct, discipline, whoever it is. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what position you hold in the church. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the church. It doesn't matter what what pool you have. If you fall in this category of you're a divisive person, you're an angry person, you're you're filling the church with strife and jealousy, you are going to be dealt with. You're going to be dealt with. Now, it turns from maybe some of these negative connotations to more positive connotations. He, the next thing is this longing that he talks about. And again, I think that the longing is the longing for the Apostle Paul. But let me just stay there for a second. If this is a, because it's a positive attribute here. I would say that one of the true marks of godly repentance is this, godly ambitions. You want to know if you're genuinely repentant? Do you have godly ambitions flowing out of you? Are you pursuing godly things? This is a good test to see if the repentance is genuine. If people tell you they've, they've repented, they've done that. How many times have, maybe have you heard that from your friends or your, your family members when you talk to them about the things of Christ? They'll tell you, oh, I've, I've done that already. Well, if you have, then there should be godly ambitions flowing out of you. You should want to be in the Word. You should want to study the Word. You should want to do what's pleasing to God. You should want to go to church. You should want to be in fellowship. You should want to worship God. You should want to walk in holiness. But when there aren't those godly ambitions, then the great suspicion should follow. I'm reminded of David in Psalm 51. Remember that classic passage on repentance? David says in Psalm 51, verse 13, after he goes through the whole litany of what he's done and how ashamed he is and how he's begging God not to cast away his presence from him and to restore to him the joy of his salvation, the result is verse 13, then I will teach transgressors. As a result of true repentance, godly ambition followed. And that's what I think is happening here. They have finally come to the point where they literally are longing for Paul. They're longing to see him. But more importantly, to see him, they are longing to reaffirm their love for him, their fellowship with him. And that's a true mark of godly repentance as well, is that it results in restoration. could be a myriad of different situations. Let's take the marriage, for example, right? When you're out of sorts with your spouse, when there's ice in the air, and things aren't right, right? You're ignoring it as much as you can, but you still, things aren't right. Godly repentance is realized once fellowship is restored. And until fellowship is restored, my dear friends, the relationship is still not right. And that's exactly, if you would, what's going on between Paul and the church. There's a restoration of fellowship that they are longing for. And there is a zeal, there is a passion 
I love this part of repentance. Genuine repentance is manifested in genuine zeal for the Lord. Listen, true repentance doesn't result in apathy. It doesn't result in lukewarmness. It doesn't result in just living a minimalistic, nominal Christian life. No, there's a passion, there's a zeal, there's energy, there's service, there's activity that goes on. And there is not, if there is not that, then you have to question, is there genuine repentance? Is there really godly sorrow? Oh, how introspective is this passage for us, right? To check our own lives, to look at our own lives and say, wow, do I have these characteristics? Do I hate sin? Do I long for godly fellowship? Do I have a desire for vindication? Do I fear the discipline of the church? Do I have zeal in my life to, to pour myself out for others? Are there those things? Paul said the same thing earlier in verse 7 here in chapter 7. He says, not only by his comings as Titus comforted them, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, another aspect was their contrition. It says, your zeal for me, their passion for Paul, so that I rejoiced even more. Again, it's the passion of restored fellowship. Restored fellowship. Fellowship is so important in the local church, right? God forbid that we would ever become the type of church that the minute we're done, last song is saying, last prayer is prayed, we are out the door and we don't care about anyone around us and we don't, we're not others-minded, we, we don't care what other people are going through or who we can encourage or who we can serve or, he, or who we can get with or who we can invite to dinner or who we can serve in the one another's of Scripture. I tell you what, it just, it just really transformed your life when you get outside of yourself. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, don't be interested just in your own interests, but in the interests of others. That's the mind of Christ. That's when you know you're thinking like Christ, you're acting like Christ. You have the same attitude and perspective and the same disposition that Christ would have in the church if he were here. Of course, he is here, and he's here through his body and so it's a call to be the body of Christ. What's the last thing here? The last thing is an avenging of wrong. The word he uses here literally means vengeance. Vengeance. In other words, they took action. It moved the church to act and to make right what went wrong. Now, obviously, in the context, contextually, what he's talking about, I believe, is if you look back at chapter 2, it's exactly what he's referring to. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, this is the vengeance that the church took. It took vengeance against the offender, the one who offended Paul, opposed Paul, was against Paul, was causing division, and was a thorn in Paul's side. Maybe. It's a big disputed passage there, but that's one of the views is that Paul's thorn in the flesh is actually this, this, this man that caused him so much trouble in Corinth. That's why it's here in 2 Corinthians 12. But anyway, we'll get to that. I'm not saying that's my position yet. I've still got a little time to figure out where I land on that, and uh, we'll see. But look at the chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. The sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Isn't that amazing? That language of church discipline is an infliction of, of some sort of punishment, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. So they, they met the requirement. They dealt with the offender. They dealt with the sin. 
they, they, they dealt with him so severely, apparently, that Paul has to tell him, hey, look, pull back. Don't overwhelm the guy. Don't let the guy get overwhelmed with sorrow. Don't let him be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, don't let Satan take advantage of the situation by, by not forgiving him and not ultimately being reconciled even with him. What's the result? The result is in the following phrase here. He says, in everything, in everything, you, you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. And that's, that's a marvelous aspect of genuine repentance. Is if you've gone so far as to vindicate yourself so thoroughly that you literally set out proof. And the reason I say set out proof is because that's what that word means. To demonstrate literally means that you built up evidence to vindicate yourself. They had built up the evidence. They had demonstrated through their actions, through their disposition, through their attitude, through their zeal, their love, their longing. All of these things are stacking up as evidence of genuine repentance in the church. There was a complete restoration. And I love it that Paul, more than all of that, it, Paul is more concerned. He's more concerned not for his own personal vindication. He's, he's going to show us that his main concern is the unity of the church. He wants to see them forgive even the offender. He wants to see total restoration in the church. He wants to see their brothers won back. He followed Jesus' directions, right, in Matthew 18, and so did the church. If your brother sins, go. Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, then you have won your brother. And that's the way that it ought to operate. Um, this same forgiving and restoring attitude should be in every single one of us. Let me read to you another correlating passage, okay? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, just to kind of universalize this to all of us. It says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ. So this is, that's kind of Paul's overall description of what godly sorrow looks like. And next he will express his desire not just for, for their repentance but for their unity. So Paul's delight in godly unity. Look at verse 12. He says, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness, you see, there's that issue of earnestness again. Your, you, could, you could translate that devotion. Your devotion on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. In the sight of God. So at the end of the day, Paul's actions, his... his uh, his motivation in writing that letter is rooted in a concern for the purity of the church. You can't get away from it. And he proves that with two denials. He says, first, it was not for the sake of the, of, of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. And Paul uses two different participles here, identifying very clearly that he knows that he was offended. He knows he could prove it. And he knows who did it. He could prove who did it. He's, he's very specific as to what the accusations are, but he looks as if, as if it were his, his greater motivation is beyond that. 
It's not just to prove who's wrong. It's not just to point the finger. His greater motivation is he knows what reconciliation and what restoration, he knows what it will result in. It will result in the greater unity of the body of Christ. And I think, it's not here, but I think all for the purpose of being an effective church for the gospel. The Apostle Paul is crazy about the gospel. He is crazy about advancing the gospel uh, and just furthering the gospel, what he calls in Philippians, the progress of the gospel. He is just in, he is obsessed with seeing the gospel go and go and go. And uh, when it doesn't, when there's kinks and there's, 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 there's problems and when there's encumbrances to that progress, he will do whatever it takes to take care of it, to get us to a place where we are an effective church who can be effective with the gospel. I mean, think of it. It's just, it's just simple common sense, right? If a church is so busy infighting with each other, if they're so busy fighting about the color of the carpet, if they're so busy fighting about who's going to do what and who's doing what where, you know, then you're going to greatly hinder your effectiveness. You're going to greatly hinder your effectiveness. And not only that, who wants to go to a church that's always bickering and fighting and backstabbing each other? I don't. I've got enough problems, right? So people think, look, i got my problems of my own. What am I going to come to your church and take all these problems on myself? Aren't my problems at home enough? i got to come to your church and get involved in all kinds of other disputes? No, that's chaos. God is a God of order. He wants a pure church. He wants a church that is functioning in a healthy way, in a healthy way. So, to me, this also demonstrates Paul's humility, that though he had all the right in the world to, to, to persecute, prosecute, literally, the person that offended him, he had a greater purpose in mind. He says to make known to you, it uh, says that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Now, that sounds a little tricky, doesn't it? What? To make known to you your earnestness for me in the sight of God. What, what is he talking about there? Uh, the, the exegesis is a little tricky, but I think we can make it plain. The essence of what Paul is looking to do is to bring to light, that's the word make known, to manifest the Corinthians' passion, their devotion, their earnestness to Paul, for for Paul rather, and this manifestation is to their advantage. It's to be manifest to them, to show them the fact that in the presence of God where they really stand with Paul, that they really stand on his side, that they're really one with him, that they're really in step with Paul if they just understand the situation correctly. And that's exactly what he's hoping this will do. Paul's aim Therefore, is that the church will ultimately see their perspective the way God sees it. And I think that's what it means when he says, before God, in the sight of God. When he says that, what he means is, in the knowledge that God has, in the sight, in the perspective that God has, in the fact that God knows the truth and sees the truth. He uses the same type of language earlier about his own ministry. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, and if you've looked at every verse that I've mentioned, I just realized you've probably flipped your Bible about 50 times. Well, I don't hear a lot of Bibles being flipped around, so I don't think any of you have looked at every passage that I've pointed out. But this is a big one because it really does get to the underlying issue. 
and that is that they are accountable, we are accountable first and foremost before God. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, kind of same language, manifestation, commending ourselves to every man's conscience again in the sight of God, in the sight of God. That's the way the ESV translates chapter 7, verse 12. There's another construction very similar to this that Paul uses throughout the letter. Very, it pretty much conveys the exact same thing. It's just a different preposition that means in front of, okay? In front of God, in the sight of God, in the presence of God, in the face of God, however you want to translate that. He uses this to, again, prove the purity of his own integrity. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, he says, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's the trick, brothers and sisters, to do everything that we do in the sight of God, in harmony with the way God thinks, in harmony with the fact that God knows exactly what the truth is, in harmony with God's moral purity. And our, the trick is to bring ourselves into that same moral purity that God possesses, that same knowledge that He has of the truth, of the way things that really, the, the way things really are. He says it again in chapter 12, verse 19. He says, "This whole time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you, but actually, it is in the sight of God that we have be, been speaking in Christ, and it's all for your upbuilding, beloved." It's all for your upbuilding, beloved. And so Paul hopes that upon repentance and their perspective has been changed, that they will come to see that the righteous results of their godly sorrow is actually in keeping with Paul's own heart, that they would see that they are actually devoted to him because Paul is for them. Paul is with them. Paul wants their unity and their edification. That's the goal behind it all. That's what he's looking for. And uh, that's why it's no surprise to find in this very letter, Paul over and over reaffirming his love for them. He says in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, out of much affliction and much anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. That's the severe letter again. He says, not so that you would become sorrowful, but that you might know the love that I have especially for you. That's at the very bottom of Paul's motivation. He wants to show them his love for them, his longing for them. Later on, he defends his, apo his apostolic ministry by contrasting himself with false teachers, these false teachers that don't love them. They're using them. They're taking advantage of them. And so Paul says, look, I don't stop boasting, that is, of his ministry and of his authority in all the regions of Achaia. He says, why? Because I don't love you? He says, God knows that I love you. God knows that I love you. As we witness the restoration of one broken relationship between a shepherd and a sheep, love, my dear friends, is the guiding principle. It is the law of Christ that guides and rescues this whole restoration process, and it should be so for us as well. 
There's nothing more fundamental, right, than for a believer to be motivated out of love. I mean, that is what separates us from the rest of the world, our Christian love, brothers and sisters. That's what will, that's what will cause us to pray with one another. That's what's going to cause us to serve one another, to, to, to care for one another, to minister to one another, to confront one another. Love. Just yesterday, I was speaking with a, with a dear sister in the Lord that uh, is having a, just a terrible time in her marriage. And uh, she doesn't go to our church, and um, I don't think hardly any of you know her, but, um, you know, she was, she's afraid to confront her husband. Her husband is not leading her spiritually not praying with her, not reading the Bible with her, not excited about the things of God, won't even engage in Christian conversation with her. And I said, you need to confront him. He's a member of a church. Go to him. Tell him, look, I told her, rat him off. Just go to the elders. Go rat him off. He's a member of a church. Go to his pastors and tell him that he is failing to be a spiritual leader in his home. He doesn't read the Bible with you. What? He never prays with you? I mean, look, I'm not looking for, you know, this, uh, you know, super holiness husband. I'm just looking for some semblance of a spiritual leader in the home, some semblance of effort to want to lead. She's afraid to do it. And finally, I just, I, I, I had to exhort her and I said, look, if you really love your husband, you'll do it. If you really love him, you'll, you'll confront him. If you really love him, look, don't be afraid of the repercussions. Do what it says in Second Peter, First Peter, to the, the, the wives, you have nothing to fear as far as your husband's concerned. Don't be afraid of anything. Trust in God. Hope in God without fearing any fear. No fear the repercussions. And only the love of God could constrain her to do what's right, to step out, to confront. And we all should confront whenever it's needed. Concerning this whole spiritual love, the supernatural love, you know Paul knows all about this love. He wrote about it. And so lastly, let's just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, chapter 13, verses uh, 4 through 8, because I think Paul really has exemplified all of these characteristics as he's dealt with the Corinthians. He's been motivated out of love. He's been motivated out of everything he describes here in this ancient passage, probably an ancient hymn. Paul probably used to sing this, but it says, love is patient. He certainly has been patient with them. Love is kind and is not jealous. He's not seeking his own. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. He's not boasting in a carnal way. He does not take account the wrong suffered. He just said, I'm not seeking the, the to, 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 he's not writing this for the sake of the fact that he was offended. He says it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth or rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, and he certainly has been bearing long with them. It believes all things. He hopes all things, and he endures all things. Love never fails. And we'll stop there before we get to the controversial part of the passage. Let's pray together. Father, help us to have this same love. Lord, help us to be motivated out of this same Christian love. Lord, you saved us to impart to us the love of God. Jesus, you said, by this the world will know 
that we are your disciples because of our love for one another. Because we're not family members. Because we're not of the same race. Because we don't have much in common with each other. Lord, because, Lord, in all practical purposes, some of us have no earthly business hanging out with one another. We have nothing in common sometimes except for Christ. And so, God, may our love for one another be a testament to the world that God is in this place. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, and we thank you even, Lord, that you have chosen to preserve the failures of the Corinthian church so that we would not fall into the same pitfalls, into the same errors, same sin, that we would make the same mistakes. Oh, God, give us the same passion for purity in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's stand together. Let's close in a song.